0: I just want to tell you both. Good luck. We're all counting on you. What's up to all our riders taking it in stride? Cause it's time to realize that the market's come alive and losses turn to gains, perception rearranged. The Fed's terminal rate may already be in range. Job gains are slowing, wages stop growing. Core price is cooling. You got to be fooling if you think the coast is clear. Though it is starting to appear that the worst may be in the rearview mirror. We can see better now. It's a little bit clearer. Say bye-bye to that summer breeze. Grab your sweaty, grab your hoodie, roll down the sleeves. Because September can be chilly. It can bring the freeze. It can clip those gains below the knees. It can sack the quarterback when he's dropping back. It can block a dunk shot when you take it to the rack. Stay humble. Stay focused. Trust your process. We're on this train together. This Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. The U.S. stock market closed out the unofficial end of summer with a nice little rally last week as not so good economic news translated into kind of good news for the stock market. Yeah, we're back to that old dynamic where signs of a slowing economy are propping up hopes that the Federal Reserve will stop hiking interest rates in its ongoing battle with inflation and start thinking about lowering them towards the end of this year and into 2024. Last week's personal consumption expenditures report showed that inflation is still with us, but it's finally starting to cool down in key areas like food and shelter prices and wages. The labor market added 187,000 jobs last month, slightly higher than expectations, but the job gains for June and July were revised lower much lower by about 120,000 jobs and average hourly earnings cooled from 4.4% to 4.2% on an annual basis. That tells us that the labor market was nowhere near as hot as we thought it was. And maybe, just maybe, monetary policy has been sufficiently restricted for the Fed to take a break. A big break. And that leads us straight into our big three, for the week. Number one, the late August rally for stocks, especially tech stocks led by NVIDIA and the AI brigade, put the U.S. stock market back where it was during the red-hot days of early June when the mega caps ruled the roost. You remember when the Magnificent Seven, as they were called, were driving all the returns for the market-weighted indexes? That changed in late July and August as the market cooled, and the equal-weighted indexes, those that track the performance of stocks on price appreciation only and not market capitalization, those were showing signs of strength. That little run was cute but short as the S&P 500 Equal Weight Index underperformed the cap-weighted index by nearly a percent and a half. That doesn't sound like much, but year to date, the Equal Weighted Index is up just six and a half percent while the classic S&P 500 is up more than 17 and a half percent. Size does matter if you're an index investor. Keep that in mind when you go trend surfing. Number two, the U.S. bond market has been no friend to investors who grew up with the barbell approach to balancing their portfolios. Prices for the 10-year U.S. Treasury are on course for their third consecutive annual loss if things keep going the way they are going. Prices are down 0.3% so far this year as yields remain elevated amid economic uncertainty. Those move in opposite directions, directions. directions as we know and we all remember last year when bond prices tumbled 17 percent breaking the 60 40 portfolio and taking down a few banks with them and back in 2021 Ten-year Treasury prices fell 3.7% during the pandemic uncertainty. If prices on the 10-year stay negative through the rest of the year, it'll be the first time in the 250 year of the U.S. Republic that that has ever happened. Yes, folks, we have to go all the way back to June 2nd, 1775, just before the Battle of Bunker Hill, when the Continental Congress in Philadelphia was trying to figure out a way to finance the ongoing war with Great Britain. The delegates resolved to issue paper money in the form of bills of credit, bonds, promising redemption in coin on faith in the revolutionary cause. Congress then issued $2 million in bills on July 25th 28 citizens of Philadelphia were employed by the Congress to sign and number the currency, and joint continental treasurers George Clymer and Michael Hillegas were tasked to oversee the administration of those government bonds. It was a good bet back then, and it has been a good bet for two and a half centuries, but the past few years have really called into question the value of the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. $32 trillion in debt may have something to do with that. And number three, stop me if you've heard this one before, but September is historically no friend of the stock market. In fact, the beginning of September to the end of October is traditionally the worst stretch of the year for stocks, especially in a pre-election year. Going all the way back to 1950, the average return for the S&P 500 in September is a negative 0.7%. The median return is actually positive, but market historians like to look at averages. Call it the September effect, the thinking being that investors return from summer break and lock in gains if they have any and prepare to do some tax loss harvesting in the final few months of the year. But the good news, according to our pal Ryan Dietrich at the Carson Group, is that when the S&P 500 is up 10% year-to-date or more going into August, which is also a historically bad month for stocks, the month of September has been higher 8 out of 10 times since 1950, with the median stock gains clocking in at around 2.6%. Now, long-term investors like us do not invest on a monthly calendar. But since we'll be hearing all month how bad September usually is, we better arm ourselves with some perspective. And one more thing. The VIX, or volatility index, which measures fear in the market, usually starts piping up around now as traders are betting on declines going into the end of the year. Well, the VIX is doing the opposite right now, and when it's quiet, stocks tend to keep rising. Let's see if that pattern holds up as the autumn wind comes rolling in. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it'll be a shortened trading week here in the U.S., thanks to the Labor Day holiday on Monday. It'll be a relatively light week in terms of economic releases. On Wednesday, the Federal Reserve will issue its latest Beige Book, an overview of the U.S. economy published eight times a year that reflects economic conditions across all 12 Federal Reserve districts. The Beige Book is actually red for what it's worth, and it will likely paint the picture of a U.S. economy that remains relatively robust despite some headwinds. Consumer spending is holding up, even though we are in the deepest credit card debt we've ever been in unemployment which ticked up to 3.8 percent in august is still fairly low and there are still 8.8 million jobs out there according to the latest jolt survey we'll get data on factory orders initial jobless claims for the week and consumer credit Fed presidents and governors will be making the rounds this week, and everyone will be listening very carefully for clues as to whether the Fed will pause and potentially stop hiking interest rates altogether when the FOMC meets September 19th and 20th. According to the CME's Fed Watch tool, there's only a 6% probability that the Fed will hike rates again at that meeting, and less than a 35% probability the Fed will hike rates at its November meeting. Fed Chair Powell keeps saying the committee is data dependent, and the data we saw last week favors a more dovish tone coming from the Fed at the the meeting in a couple of weeks. On the earnings front, just a few notable names will be reporting results this week, including grocery chain Kroger and DocuSign. The corporate conference circuit heats up this week with the Goldman Sachs Communicopia Technology Conference, the Roblox Developer Conference, the City Global Technology Conference, the Barclays Global Consumer Staples Conference, and Intuit's Innovation Day all on the calendar. And next Sunday, we're returning to Future Proof, the one-of-a-kind wealth festival on the boardwalk of Huntington Beach, California, produced by our good friends at Advisor Circle. We'll be there, and we'll bring back some goodies from that gathering in a couple weeks. It is the summer of labor's discontent as unions across industries have taken to the picket lines or threatened walkouts amid demands for higher wages, better benefits, a bigger piece of the pie, and protection from the threats of AI. Support for organized labor is near historic highs in the U.S. today, and workers seem to be having their moment, especially at companies like UPS. But union numbers are not what they once were, and companies like Walmart and Amazon, which employ millions of workers, are non-unionized. So where does labor go from here, and how will the inevitable transformation of industries through better technology impacted strength and its voice. Shereish Naidu is a professor of development economics, labor economies, and the political economy at Columbia University. He is also the Jack Wang and Echo Ren professor of economics there. Thank you so much for joining The Express. Thank you for having me. So Gallup is out with its most recent poll on this. It just came out this week. 67% of Americans favor unions, but only about 11% of the U.S. workforce is unionized. Why the imbalance, in your opinion?
1: There's two components to it. One is, there's a different question that's asked often, which is like, would you vote for a union if an election was held tomorrow? And that also gets something like 40%, 48% support. And so there still is a gap between, do you just approve of unions and do you want a union for yourself? That's like 20%. But then there's also a gap between the 40% of people that say that they would vote for a union and the 11% of people that are in unions. And by the way, about half of that 11% is in the public sector, where there's a very different set of dynamics at play. So private sector density is only 6%. So it's basically like as small as you could imagine. And part of that is that in a lot of ways, I think American employers, particularly since the 1970s, just kind of refuse to recognize unions as like legitimate partners in business. And so there was like an enormous amount of hostility sort of cultivated starting in the 1970s. You see it with Reagan politically, you see it in a bunch of big strikes in the 1980s, where, let me just give you an example. There used to be a rule against using permanent replacements in strikes. You would have a strike and you'd be out of your job, but then when the strike ended, you would get your job back. That wasn't in law. That was just kind of a norm. But then starting in the in the 70s and then increasingly over the 80s, there becomes like employers just are like, all right, no, you're just out. We're going to permanently replace you. And so that norm of getting your job back is just kind of eroded. And actually there's like a move to legislate the permanent replacement, uh, banning permanent replacements in the Clinton administration that never gets off the ground. But just as an example of just how much the previous kind of detente between employers and unions that was there from, say, like, I would say 1948 through the 70s just kind of crumbled. And I think employers were never loved unions, but they were kind of politically beaten into submission in the 30s and 40s. And then there was like a delicate truce, and then it kind of unraveled. So when you look at US and UK, union density, particularly private sector density, really ticks down like in the late 1970s, early 1980s, that recession, that is the thing that like kind of particularly manufacturing just like decimates American unions, but also does it in transportation and construction and sectors that are not hit by globalization, for example, you're still sort of seeing declines in union density. And so it's partly like it's a war on many fronts, some of which is technology, some of which is globalization, but some of it is just like policy and employer intransigence.
0: Yeah. And also maybe the rise of the shareholder class and, you know, publicly traded companies with investors that really in large part don't favor unions. Let's talk about some of the largest employers in the in the country that don't allow unions. I mentioned Walmart and Amazon. Home Depot is another one. These companies employ hundreds of thousands or millions of people in some cases, and they've been able to repress or organized labor? Do you think that they're going to be successful in continuing to do that? Or do you think at some point it will tip in organized labor's favor?
1: I think predicting the evolution of the labor movement is a bit like predicting like pandemics or wildfires. It's like, if it happens, it will be this kind of like, out of nowhere thing. It will be like the Starbucks organizing, which, you know, for the longest time, you'd never think you could organize Starbucks by doing one election at a time in every single Starbucks store. But then, you know, I think after these first victories, something caught fire. And now we've sort of seen like, you know, almost 10,000 workers recognized in Starbucks. And so that's Starbucks. There's an interesting history and reason for that, that's separate. And if Walmart and Amazon go, it'll look something like that. And I suspect it will be organic and bottom up. And so it's exactly going to be the kind of thing you can't predict. That said, I think the things that would make that more successful, more likely to succeed should it happen. So let me put it this way. There's kind of a bottom up thing that needs to happen to get the demand for unions up. But then there's also a whole bunch of policy and legal things that need to happen for that to win and actually turn into a collective bargaining agreement that like raises wages, guarantees your job, all of those things. And that is kind of why, you know, we need like labor law reform has been a perpetual ask of the labor movement for like 80 years. And they've never really gotten it for various reasons. But it's just really the case that the legal playing field is very much stacked against unions at every step for petitioning for an election, for the rules around an election. And then even after you've won the election, getting an employer to agree to a collective bargaining agreement, it's actually at every step of that process that employers have so much leeway. To get around the law and the penalties for breaking the law are so not severe that employers are just kind of like, yeah, we'll just ignore it. And one of the interesting things with the Biden administration, we haven't had labor law reform, but we have had a very aggressive NLRB general counsel with Jennifer Bruzo, who's kind of been pushing both like rulings and interpretations that kind of are trying to tilt the balance back to more of a level playing field. And so that's sort of an interesting component of what's happening now is that besides the tight labor market, and just kind of a general enthusiasm for unions, there's also this kind of things happening inside the policy and legal landscape, subject to the constraints that it's impossible to get anything done in the US government.
0: You're referring to the National Labor Relations Board, folks. We're going to link to their site in the show notes because it's important to follow what they're actually representing there and what they're trying to do. Where is new membership going to come from? Is it going to come from immigration? Is it going to come from this bottoms-up movement that you described in companies like Starbucks where it's a few at a time and then it grows into something bigger? How do unions grow from here? You mentioned only six or so percent of the private sector workforce. That is probably all-time lows given where they started.
1: So where does it come from? So I think there's kind of like three strategies. It's like, first, people have to want a union. And like we said, there are a lot of people that want a union. But I would say that one of the things that it's also the case is that particularly young people actually have no experience and no idea what a labor union is. It's vibes. They like think it's good. But the concrete experience of one, like, because density is so low, where would you have ever had a union job or known anybody with a union job? So I think just the general knowledge and information about how union jobs are better is just scarce, particularly among young people. And so, but that's also the group that's experienced the biggest increase in interest in unions is young people. I do think if it comes, it's going to be basically because, like, there's a big, upswing of like younger workers kind of demanding unions and you're kind of seeing this with like all the graduate you know the biggest labor events of the last couple of years have been graduate students at my university at other universities kind of organizing for recognition and getting collective bargaining agreements and that's kind of symptomatic of like kind of where the demographic interest in unions are coming i think it's also coming from like women in the labor market who kind of for all kinds of perfectly unfair reasons, find that the design of the job and the protections against discrimination and harassment are just not kind of doing the job or sort of looking for unions as kind of a way to sort of implement gender equity on the job, partly by doing the things that unions do, like mandating kind of standardized pay scales, promotion ladders, those things that make kind of the favoritism of a non-union workplace, like, which disproportionately hurts women, like, less binding.
0: So we have strikes going on across industries. As I mentioned, we have the big Hollywood strike, which is the Screen Actors Guild, the Writers Guild of America. And then we have a potential strike coming with the United Auto Workers, which is up to renegotiate its master agreement against the big three. Different unions, different sets of concerns beyond the fact that workers want better pay. They want better benefits. But in the case, and I guess it's kind of similar in both cases, the writers and the actors are trying to protect themselves also against the future, against artificial intelligence and what it could mean to their jobs, what it could mean to how they get paid. Can you possibly compare what's happening within those strikes, within those unions, on any level, despite the fact, be, including the fact that they want better pay?
1: I mean, at some level, they all have the common things that you know you have a, a group of workers that are like have a union and are trying to both protect what they have and get a share of a growing pie in both sectors. So if you think both Hollywood and the auto industry, it's not going anywhere. It's like there's a lot of money on the table. And so both sets of workers, I think, are thinking that some of that is fairly they've produced and they're entitled to a share of it. And so it's part of the trying to raise wages, but also I think seeing how profitable their sectors are. And just being like, wait, we made some of that. And so you should share it with us. And then I think it's also, I think people want security. It's like the idea that you would have to perpetually be shopping for a job. is just like, you know, for anybody that wants to like uh, raise a family or like settle down, it's just very difficult to kind of perpetually be worried about having to hunt for a new job. And so job security and then... For the case of both like industry security so that if there is some sort of like radical change that happens to this industry that we're kind of like given some sort of like collective severance package and so you can do this in a bunch of ways and i think the different unions will ask for it in different ways which is one is that you're like kind of okay if you're going to adopt this new technology like ai or some form of new automation you've got to bargain with us over it and so that means if it's really productivity improving then it should be an easy thing for an employer to say all right fine we want to do this new thing we realize we're going to have to give workers 50% of the benefits from it but it's so productive that it's going to be worth it but what you actually have is like employers with a bunch of what a recent book calls like so-so automation where they have like kind of they have new technology but it's kind of crappy but it will mean that they can really lower labor costs and not necessarily generate a much better product maybe even make a worse product but on the whole the profits are higher. And so the incentives are to use these kinds of so-so technologies. And so they're, I think, asking for like kind of the prerogative and rights to implement these technologies without having to bargain with them over the union. And I think it's really important that the unions kind of retain this right to bargain over the technology, partly because for the good of everyone it forces employers to like really go for the technological changes that improve like overall productivity, and not just the ones that are like able to transfer from either customers or workers to profits. And so like having to bargain over technology with unions, make sure that the kinds of technologies that employers are adopting are kind of really like win-win technologies.
0: Let's talk about the looming strike by the UAW against the big three automakers. Does the UAW have any shot of getting a deal as good as what UPS workers got? They just got a, a big raise over a, a number of years plus benefits. And then there's robotics. We were just talking about technology, EVs that require less employees to build and the future of cars in general. Let's, how do you handicap what's happening at the UAW? How do you think that will resolve?
1: So I think the UAW is a different UAW than it was a couple of years ago, partly with this new leadership. And very interestingly, partly because its membership has been transformed by all these graduate students it's, uh, and just kind of like new sectors. So auto is still a big part of it, but it's not the only, only part of the UAW. And, but I think part of that means that this new leadership is also like much more energized and much less willing to play nice with the auto firms and i think the companies sort of realize that so i think there's like because there's a real credible threat of a very painful strike on the table they might actually get like a pretty good contract out of it what's tricky is getting the things that will protect that contract going forward with all the things you said about robotics and evs because the tension particularly with all the money coming in to evs and things is that a lot of that's going to go into the non union parts of the auto sector that are just kind of extremely difficult to organize and it's something of a dilemma for the labor movement but partly why there's so many useful things in like the the infrastructure bill that kind of make sure that if you're getting federal money you can't spend it on anti-union activities for example and that kind of thing that might be like an opening that you kind of want to make sure that you not just win a good contract for your current members but you also need to make sure that like your current members aren't undercut by the industry moving someplace else. And for that, you need really kind of important provisions for access and things in right-to-work states with big auto sectors, for example.
0: Professional sports unions seem to have figured this out. Is that because they're so small relatively, yet their members are so critical to the product?
1: Professional sports are fairly interesting. And it's like there's not a lot of data on this, and it's kind of, I would love to get more So listeners, if you're sitting on professional sports financial data, come talk to me. But it turns out from the stuff I have been able to see, it's like, despite the fact that they're unionized, you know, professional sports is one of the sectors, I think, with almost the lowest labor share of income. And you think, oh, what are the owners doing? But like the players actually take home a remarkably small share of the revenue generated by the professional sports sector. And so the, the, I think the unions probably do a lot of good, but there's like a lot of heterogeneity in those unions and there's a lot of playing nice with the employers. So so I think the professional sports unions, I'm not an expert on them by any means, and I think they're probably better than the alternative because they let players kind of negotiate collectively over also not just like the financial stuff like health and safety, like all the stuff around CTE and the NFL has been kind of uh, an issue taken up by the NFL Players Association. It's also the case that I wonder if a more aggressive set of players unions could in fact get more of the money that goes into the pockets of owners that don't obviously do a lot of the work in this sector.
0: All right. We have a presidential election in about 14 months. I'm not asking you to handicap that at all. But the Biden administration, as you mentioned, has been relatively friendly to labor unions and to the organized labor. What if a Republican takes the Oval Office again, or does it matter if there's gridlock in Congress? What happens if a Republican does become the next president?
1: I mean, I think the big thing for Labor is that all of this stuff I said earlier about the National Labor Relations Board doing things with rulings and actions that gets reversed. So let me give you a little interesting statistic. So, you know, when you go for a union, you have an election, you have a secret ballot election. If the union wins more than 50% of the vote, you get a union. It turns out when Republicans have a majority on the National Labor Relations Board, you see like a statistically significant larger share of like 49% losses. And it's because there's so many ways in which employers can like fight unions that chisel on the margin. And when the Republicans control the National Labor Relations Board, they're much more willing to look askance at sort of various things that employers are doing and employers know that and they can they can leverage that. So I think the immediate thing would be the effects on the enforcement and interpretation of labor law. And that's no joke. I mean, like, I think, you know, Trump's pick, I think, was like Puzder for Secretary of Labor, who was like the Carl's Jr. executive that, you know, had things of like, how could you ever hope? Why does any fast food worker deserve $15 an hour? I couldn't imagine paying anyone $15 an hour to to scoop ice cream. So I think like, you know, the personnel that they'll put in charge for all of the working class rhetoric and stuff, the people that they put in charge of actually regulating conditions of workers in this country are like always the most employer-friendly, the most pro-low wages that you can kind of find. And I don't think that was different with Trump than it was with Bush or with Reagan. And so I don't expect anything to be different, regardless of who wins the nomination.
0: You're an economist and you're a labor expert. You know, Investopedia is a site built on our definitions and our financial and economic terms. I'm wondering what your favorite economic term is. Would you share it with us?
1: Well, I kind of contractually obliged to give the term monopsony as my buzzword, which it actually means kind of something like delicate fish cake in the original, like, like, sorry, single buyer of delicate fish cakes is sort of the classical Greek interpretation of it. But it really means like, it's been used to mean like a single buyer of labor. And it basically is now means that like workers generally in the labor market, the idea is that employers don't have to worry about a lot of competition from other employers all the time. And so that the kind of idea is that if you think about like what would happen if if an uh, employer like cut their wage by 10%, how many workers would they lose? They only lose like 20, 30%. They don't lose anything close to 100%. And so that means that there's a lot of room for employers to lower the wage and not lose all of their workers. And it's just like the flip side of monopoly in the product market, just in the labor market. And I think you guys have this somewhere in the Investopedia.
0: Absolutely do. And it has become a very popular term, I will tell you, in the last several months as people are watching what's happening inside organized labor. Suresh Naidu, the professor of international and public affairs and the Jack Wang and Echo Ren professor of economics at Columbia University. Thanks so much for joining The Express. Thank you. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from... Do you remember? earth wind and fire of course it's the september effect we talked about it earlier but you're going to be hearing about it over and over again across financial media for the next few weeks according to the world's greatest investing education website the september effect is a supposed market anomaly whereby stock market returns are relatively weak during the month of september it's considered an anomaly because it violates the assumption of market efficiency but it gets its name because historically portfolio managers did a lot of selling in september either to lock in gains ahead of the fourth quarter Or to do some tax loss harvesting if they've taken losses throughout the year also it may be a coincidence but some of the worst days in stock market history occurred in september like black friday in 1869 the days after 9 11 in 2001 and the beginning of the unraveling of the subprime crisis in 2008 but if you bet against the month of September since 2014, you would have lost money in the stock market. Things change in historical axioms like the September effect, the October effect, sell in May and go away, and the Santa Claus rally. They make for good copy, but for lousy investing strategies. Be an investor for all seasons and all months and leave the historical axioms to financial pundits on television. We're gonna let the goat kick us out this week. Warren Buffett turned 93 years young last week, and he's provided us with more than a lifetime's worth of investing advice, anecdotes, and pure common sense. In honor of Buffett's birthday, we're gonna take you all the way back to 1985 to Buffett's first national television appearance when he appeared on Adam Smith's Money World on PBS. Here's Buffett with a very characteristic yet very effective description of why he considers himself a value investor.
1: The real test of whether you're investing From a value standpoint or not is whether uh you care whether the stock market is open tomorrow Uh, if you're making a good investment in a security it shouldn't bother if they close down the stock market for five years all the ticker tells me is the price and i can look at the price occasionally to see whether the price is outlandishly cheap or outlandishly high but but prices don't tell me anything about a business business uh business figures themselves tell me something about a business but the price of a stock doesn't tell me anything about a business i would rather value a stock or a business first and not even know the price, so that I'm not influenced by the price in establishing my valuation. And then look at the price later to see whether it's way out of line with what my value
0: is. A very happy belated birthday to the great Warren Buffett and wishing him many happy returns. Thanks for riding with us this week, as always, and special thanks to Suresh Naidu from Columbia University for breaking down the organized labor movement today. We'll link to his research and all the reports we cited on this week's show. Find those in the show links wherever you ride The Express. And from one Buffett to another, we say goodbye to Jimmy Buffett, Warren Buffett's unofficial cousin, and the legendary singer-songwriter who gave us Margaritaville, Cheeseburger in Paradise, and so many summer hits, perfect for the pool, the forge, the beach, or the boat. Jimmy Buffett passed away last weekend at the way too young age of 76. He was a regular at Warren Buffett's annual meeting in Omaha, and like his unofficial cousin, Jimmy leaves us with the simple sounds of summer. Good times, a cold beverage, and friends. Sail on, good sir, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line. away.